Well, I haven't podcasted in a while, so I thought I would give it a shot. Um, I'm reading just what can only be described as a (laughs) ragtag cornucopia of books on different themes. Um, Everything from a very excellent book about the 50s from uh, David Halberstam. Uh, to from counterculture to cyberculture. Uh, I'm kind of revisiting some books that I that I had read already. Um, some pretty not very not covering a whole lot of ground, but a few relevant passage in Tyler Cohen's stuff, like averages over. Um, I'm still obsessed with the French Revolution, but it doesn't look like it's going to play any role in the book that I'm trying to write. <laughs> so I'm not sure. I think maybe I'm going to have to let the French Revolution go. I try. I attempted to to read um, Jim Battista Vico. The right? so I have I have to read him. I have a chapter on some some provocative statements that, or theories that he had. Um, but it's almost impossible to get through the new, his, the new science. Um, it, Isaiah Berlin said famously, <laughs> and from Berlin, this means a lot because of course he was a very clear writer, but he said famously that Vico was a genius, but a terrible writer. And now I'm seeing the, uh, the I'm seeing the accuracy of, of Berlin's, uh, take on him as is really almost impossible to get through. But, um, to some extent, I kind of wandered into, sociology for obvious reasons, because I've got two basic, uh, points that I want to make in the book. One is that it looks like we are back at the beginning of the cold war at the end of the cold war. In other words, this decade looks a lot like the 1950s. And I understand that readers are going to say, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) You have, you cannot be serious. Right, like the Mac, remember the tennis coach McEnroe or the tennis player McEnroe? You cannot be serious. Yes, I'm serious. It looks a lot like the 1950s. It's very conformist. Um, there's a kind of there's a kind of surface level cheeriness to everything, but uh, on just like there are vast oceans of anxiety underneath it. Um, there, there's, there, we have this, we had one really good existential crisis to generate all that ennui or all that anxiety, uh, which would be, you know, and uh, I was looking for angst, not ennui, um, you know, which was the, you know, just the, the fusion bomb, right? Like, so immediately upon detonating the, the, the two fission bombs that ended, ended World War II, um, uh, Edward Teller began Im- immediately working on a, a bomb that they just nicknamed the super, which is, of course, you take something like a hundred, you know, pounds of, of, uh, deuterium or heavy water and you put a, an, un, like you put a atom bomb in the middle of it. And so when it explodes, it explodes all the deuterium and then you create like a 10,000 times more powerful bomb than what incinerated basically two mid-sized cities with over 100,000 people. Like, we needed more of that, right? So that happened almost immediately after the war ended, which, of course, prompted Oppenheimer to leave 
and then he later became got branded as a communist and so on. By the way, you also had a lot of witch hunt stuff going on in the 1950s. So there, it's very fascinating, by the way, to read the history. It wasn't just McCarthy. It was really everywhere. Like People in government were, in high levels of government everywhere, were just absolutely panicked that there were communists in their midst. And um, there were, too, by the way. There were a lot of sympathizers for communists because this was before it had broken out that Stalin was, you know, a horrible monster. I mean, there were people that really thought, gee, um, you know, they had stark, vivid memories of the Great Depression. And, um, you know, right at the beginning of the 50s, it wasn't obvious that all of this war machinery was going to translate into consumerism. Um, it did, of course, and the 50s became the um, central decade of consumerism uh, in the 20th century. Maybe the 50s and the 90s for different, you know, for different tech. But, um, but um, so, yeah, so there's a lot of parallels. And, of course, the thing that's most interesting is that the, the economy was basically, uh, it was a, largely, it was a, it was a product of a lot of, a research and investment by the Department of Defense, of course. And there's a lot, by the way, there are a lot of ties to our current technology that were originally investments from the Department of Defense um, in computing infrastructure, um, in, I mean, less, I would say sort of less successfully AI, but certainly in all kinds of um, self-navigating autonomous vehicles, drones, and so on. So there was that. And um, then the actual business world or business climate of the 50s was, okay, it was very, very large corporation. And um, the key piece of technology was uh, a, a big mainframe computer. So IBM was a very rich company in the 1950s because everybody needed a big mainframe computer. And it cost about something like $100,000 a a month or something to rent one. And back then that was a ton of money and to buy one was like in the millions, right? So, um, and nobody really had the lever, the power lever of this, like the average Joe or Jane walking down the street had no access to this really. Um, they had the access to the products of it in terms of whatever the, you know, whatever value it brought to the business. Uh, or the government, but as the count, but you know, in the sixties, they figured out, wait a minute, this just became a giant surveillance surveillance machine. But what I found interesting about it is like, that was the, that's the cloud. The 1950s was big companies with big deep pockets and a shockingly few number of people and companies. This was by the way, own all of the computing resources right? <laughs> and, and they use it, the central thing they're using it to do is centralize data and process it. And that's exactly where we ended up. Uh, you know, circa 2023, we've got big companies with deep pockets and consortiums like OpenAI, and they own uh, the cloud, if you want to use the lingo, and they own all the, all of the, the, the major, major products of, of computation now are actually re-centralized and they're, and they're owned by a small number of people and, and organizations. And so we didn't think this was going to happen. We thought that we were creating this new future and it seemed like we traced a big 40 or 50 year, or actually it's sort of like a 70 year circle, depending on where you start. Uh, back to the 1950s. 
Um, and there's just tons of parallels. Like we're living through the 50s. And the other thing is that I think it's only superficially true that we have this really tolerant society. And it's only superficially true that we're non-conformist, whereas we used to be. I'm talking about Americans now in particular. We used to be very conformist, now we're non-conformist. I think basically we've also wandered into a kind of cultural conformism. And um, we also have been able to, in spite of almost, almost perpetual discussion of intolerance on social media, it's, it's, we're very, it's a very intolerant culture as well, right? And so we've, we kind of, we've done a fantastic job of returning to the 50s um, in all kinds of ways. And so that, the two things that I wanted to make in the, the two things, just to return, the two things that, the two points that I really want to hammer on in the book as I tell the story of the history of the 21st century. The one is how computing did not democratize and decentralize as we thought it would. It became, again, the IBM model, very clearly. That's a pretty easy case to make. Um, when you look at chat GPT, uh, how much it costs, how many millions it costs to train that, right? Like you, you have to be a, some kind of business tycoon to, be, to have that kind of money to train it. And to actually use the full version, I think, you know, you know it's extremely expensive. Um, and so, you know, it's pretty easy to see how we went back to that. We went back to the 1950s model rather than, you know, what all the, the cyber culture of the, uh, you know, the previous decades, the 70s and 80s and 90s were saying it's going to democratize. If you read all the literature in the late 90s, people like Kevin Kelly they're saying, well, forget about it, right? Like we're, these networks are going to just ruin big companies. They're going to, it's going to basically put the power into the hands of the people and all that. And that all, like that just reads like, that's just absolutely risible to read that today, to go back and read that, what people thought was going to happen. Uh, and people in the know, by the way, uh, Kevin Kelly is not a stupid guy. Um, so... Yeah. And then the second one, the second point that I want to make is the point about what's our, what is the human condition circa 21st century so far? In other words, what's, what, what do we, what, what is our view of the person and how do we, um, you know, how, how is it functioning? Like what is our view of ourselves and, and, you know, and, and other people. And I think that's like, I have been alluding to that's actually strangely, a superficial consumeristic confusion matrix that you see in the 50s. Um, you don't see, actually, in spite of the fact that we had violence here and there with the COVID, you don't see the 1960s just open, like come out in the open with revolution and huge rifts in how people are, are understanding um, this, you know, the, the society around them. Like, we're not seeing that. We're seeing a lot of conformism and this kind of underlying churning anger and confusion. Lots of um, mindfulness training. Uh, people are becoming Buddhists left and right. <laughs> that's always a symptom that something's wrong with the Westerner because that's just not in our DNA um, to sit around and meditate. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but when that becomes a movement, you know that there's nothing better for the Western mind to grab onto. There's no innovation. Um, so there, there, this is one part that I find a little bit difficult. Um, 
the there there was the innovation story of the fifties is a little bit different than the innovation story of the of the two thousand tens, but it does remain true that at least with computing um, resources that was monopolized through the fifties, and so there wasn't there was innovation happening, but it was only happening in a top down manner, right? Nobody was actually doing something revolutionary like building a PC or championing even a PC. People didn't even start talking about the personal computer until the 60s. And it took until the 70s with, of course, people like Jobs and Wozniak and so on to actually do it. Um, So, you know, even the innovation story, I mean, the, the reason I'm saying that's a little tricky is that I think there was a lot more innovation happening across the industries in the 1950s than there is today. <laughs> you know, things were actually moving, but the computing industry actually was, was very much locked up in one model. And so I think that's true as well. And so, and so why, why would I want to say this? Well, because if you, were, if you think that we're making this like onward and upward progress and you end up back in the 1950s, your model of history is just bullshit. <laughs> and I think most people, certainly tech people, uh, you know, my, my, my colleagues and friends that are in tech and so on just kind of have that as an underlying assumption that we're making this kind of, you know, progress and that the arrow is just pointing linearly up. And you know, there are bumps in the road, but things are just getting better uh, and better and better. And it seems like now that's like really simplistic and probably harmful uh, idea. Uh, and it needs to be, uh, it needs to be really critically examined. And so the book is going to definitely try to do that. So I'm not going to come out with a model of history. <laughs> I'm not going to say like, I think this is what happened since the, Egypt- the Egyptians, but I'm going to let Vico tell a little bit of his story. And he says, yeah, that history moves in a curve, not a straight line. So what the, ver- so, and interestingly, it's language that actually changes uh, that actually spells both the success and then the downfall. So the, the very seeds of, of disillusion and discontent are in the language that's adopted that make the society successful. So in our case, I suppose that would be all the rights talk and the, you know, every, like, I don't know yet, but it, it would certainly be in the United States, you know, it can't be more than 300 years old. And so how much of that, how much of the of the language that we that we have collectively used to construct a very very powerful society and a very successful society, how much of that language contains the seeds of its own self destruction in it, uh, and then there's and so Vico would say that there's going to be this inevitable apex that we hit if we view ourselves as being a great civilization, like uh, you know, we're, like it's a little civilization is a little bit too big of a word, but. The United States is kind of almost like a civilization, but, um, you know, if we view ourselves as being something like, you know, comparable to the Roman era or something, the American era, which is also a bit laughable, then it, then his analysis is that just like the Romans and just like the Egyptians before the Romans, um, the seeds of, of our decline are already in the way that we're talking and it it, it becomes like he says like that you know that becomes apparent at some point and then by then it's usually too late 
So I, well, I don't know if he's right any more than anybody else knows if he's right because I can't see into the future. But I'm saying that it's a, prov- it's a provocation, but it's one that I think has a salutary um, you know, effect or intent, which is like, let's think about this a little bit more. Because the, the classic AI model of history is just ridiculously simple. I call it the, the simple linear model. And that idea fits perfectly with selling more gadgets constantly because you just always assume the next gadget means the next step uh, along this path to utopia. And of course, very, very early on, people recognized, um, you know, contra Marx, but very early on, uh, People, so like William Barrett comes to mind, the philosopher in the 1950s, started recognizing that technologists are always, are almost necessarily tied to a utopian future. Um, because otherwise, the other option as technology becomes all pervasive is that, you know, we're going to blow ourselves up or we're going to, you know, pollute the planet or so on. So you almost, you almost necessarily have to invoke some kind of utopian finality to it all because that means that all the the stuff that's that that's you know uh has has a very bad downside and a very negative consequence like we're actually going to triumph and solve all those problems we're going to the new technology is going to solve the old technology's problems um and you know one one response to that and i'm not really into this because it's well-worn terrain and i i don't have anything new to add people have been talking about this but one response is like that's like a dog chasing its tail how could you possibly ever catch it because right like that's sort of like saying new technology is going to solve the old technology's problems like already you know you're in trouble uh, because that just means that the new new technology's got its you know the new technology becomes the old technology, or the old technology becomes the new technology, and then you have the new new technology, and uh, you know and like that never is going to end. So that project can't be completed. So utopia has to be kind of dumped, like a uh, how do you say a uh, Deus ex machina. Like the utopian vision for the end of it has to just kind of be dumped on, you know, it has to emerge from the ceiling of the show uh, there. And it's all a utopia, but no. So I don't know how much I'm going to say about that other than quips, but I wanted to do the podcast um, to explain a little bit about um, Reisman's book. It's called The Lonely Crowd. It's uh, a book that was written in 1950 interestingly. And um, it's sold over a million copies. And he's, he was, I think he's dead now, but he, um, he was a sociologist and was, um, you know, he wrote this book and he wrote it in kind of layman's language. And it just became the book for everyone to discuss. Um, and I had never read it. And funny, I was downtown and I was, you know, at this restaurant and the waiter who's a kid, like, I mean, he's like a Texas A&M undergraduate, or I think he graduated now, but he said, oh, you've got to read The Lonely Crowd. It's the, so I went ahead and just like for purposes of having something to say the next time I was at the restaurant, I ran ahead and got it. And then I realized, oh yeah, this is really interesting and relevant. But Reisman, if you don't know what he said in The Lonely Crowd, it said that, um, the Western world has gone through three phases socially. The first was tra- tradition-directed, 
which you just preserve the past. Like the whole job when you raise kids is to preserve whatever the tradition is. That's the job. And if the, if the people believe the tradition and, um, you know, uphold the tradition in their, in their actions and words, then, you know, you're good to go. And that's all anybody ever tries to do, by the way, that's the whole point. Um, Inner directed is kind of like the Renaissance Reformation person. That's the person who's more individualistic. They have what he calls a gyroscope inside of them, which means I don't care if my peer group is telling me I'm crazy. I'm going to go, uh, you know, I'm going to invent the, you know, new model of the atom and I'm going to take an ex, you know, an expeditionary force to the North Pole and so on. Like that person is very unaffected by the peer group. And they see their job, the interdirected person sees their job as being kind of um, to establish, um, you know, and, and a set of virtues or, or, or rather to preserve and, and um, you know, uh, make stronger uh, the set of and bring into action the set of virtues that their parents, that, that they took from their, their parents or wherever. Um, so they have... In other words, their, their um, central kind of orientation to life is like, basically, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm courageous enough not to fail. I'm, I'm patient enough not to, you know, slap my wife or whatnot, right? Like, so they have these, this, this kind of stuff going on. And he calls that the, the kind of gyroscope, the other directed type. Um, and for a very, very long time in Western culture, this was the type that we said, these are like the heroes. And, um, and this is like how pretty much everybody was, even if you failed at that, if you were a horrible failure and you were a bum on the street corner, your standard of what it social, you know, your social standard was being interdirected. Like that's what you were hoping to have done, even if you didn't do it. Um, and sometime he's like, it, it was roughly mirrored in the rise of consumerism and Reisman was writing, like I said, in the 1950s, but he said that what we have now is what he calls other directed and the metaphor is the radar. And so you're looking outward and you're basically just constantly obsessed with how other people are perceiving you. And whether or not, like, you know, whether you're being accepted or not, and whether or not you're saying the right things or not. And, you know, it's like your peer group is just determining almost everything. So nobody's going to um, go to, to use the Warren, to, we have already been to the North Pole. We have like, <laughs> like many expeditions up there. But um, the, the, the idea would be something like an other directed person is never going to undertake uh, an expedition to the North Pole unless like that's what people are talking about. And that's what constitutes, you know, the accepted thing to do, uh, which it never will, by the way, which might explain why we're not doing a lot of really courageous things, but we're sitting on the Internet and manufacturing emotions. Uh, because uh, that's never going to be a, a the communitarian and high, highly sensitized um, orientation towards the peer group is never going to generate interdirected heroes <laughs> like that. It doesn't work that way. Um, so and you feel like quite quite ostracized and even crazy and even weird if you have the if you have a retrograde type of 
personality, right? So the lonely crowd is the vast majority of the people are constantly attuned to getting and giving attention to their peer group. And interestingly, so if you read commentary about Reisman's book, The Lonely Crowd, one thing you'll notice is that almost everyone says like it's still relevant. It's even more relevant today, right? So it's one of these books that somehow captured something really basic. Um, and so there's a guy, Mestrovic, who, <laughs> again, the waiter uh, gave, uh, you know, recommended me. And the book's called Post-Emotional Society by Stefan Mestrovic. And the foreword is by David Reisman. And what Mestrovic argues is that the logical kind of extension of the other directed person from Reisman is uh, the post-emotional person. And they are basically char characterized by <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, circulating and manufacturing a set of fake emotions. <laughs> And the emotions actually get whatever when so when the words are full of passion and the words are full of 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 um, you know outrage or whatever the case may be, those are actually reconstructed from the past. So he talks about the O.J. Simpson trial, which is ridiculous because he wrote it in 1997 and the, that trial was you know just a few years old, and so he talks a lot about the trial. He talks about the Bosnian War, and that is really out of the collective mind. But his analysis of the post-emotional type, social type, right, just is what everyone is doing on social media. It's like uncanny. It's uncanny. And so there's this kind of really, really prescient analysis of consumerism and technology and what's happening to the human person that starts, you know, really with Reisman planting this flag in the 50s. And then it continues on up through, you know, Marcuse and um, um, Baudelaire. Um, I can't pronounce his name. Baudelaire, Baudelaire I think. And um, who's more of a postmodernism. And I'm not going to get it. I don't have time nor the interest in getting into the difference. Postmodernism is a response to rationality. It ignores emotions. And so uh, there's a sense in which, and Mestrovic argues this, postmodernism is not that relevant, actually, because our problem is not rationality. So in a post-emotional world, the level of confusion is such that people think that what we need is more rationality to combat the fake emotion problem, right? And it's not, actually. Rational, the, more ration, the more rationality you try to add to it, the more you just end up using more and more words to disguise what's happening because it's at core an emotional problem. There's a sense in which you have this shallow, you're, you're like everybody is collectively lost in a set of shallow emotions. And the only way that we can get real authentic emotion is by looking back to the past. So when we have outrage, and by the way, I have no dog in this hunt and I'm picking this because it's relevant today and it will resonate with the listener. But, um, when we have some kind of problem, a racial problem in the United States, the language is of a lynch mob of, you know, like in Mississippi in 18, you know, 70 or something. And that language was real outrage because lynch mobs are really outrageous. I mean, that's like, you know, like that is like 
You must be outraged by a lynch mob or there's something seriously wrong with you. But we use that language today to talk about almost anything that brings offense, right? And so that's like a, that is a, a symptom, exactly a symptom of the post-emotional uh, so, you know, uh, society. And um, it also shows why it could be Vico's kind of unraveling because we have a, a serious problem actually sorting out what's fact from fiction and actually using our, our emotions um, in a correct way, in a way that tracks, you know, and tracks reality. And, um, you know, so I think that, like, that was what I wanted to accomplish. I try to keep these to 30 minutes. I recommend reading the book. It's a little irritating, frankly, not because he's, uh, I think his points, I've tried to summarize them. I think his points are qu quite relevant today, hyper relevant today. But he uses examples from the 1990s that are just silly. So everything is McDonald's, how McDonald's is taking over everything instead. Because there was no internet, really. There was, you know, there was no social media. So it's, it's sort of like the, the, the McDonald'sization of, you know, the, the, you know, he talks about how you can have for your children, you can have McDonald's just do the whole thing now. So you have this mechanization of all these different areas of life. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he makes a lot of, a big deal, of course, about the, the Bosnian war, um, and also the Gulf war, which is old news now. And, um, and then, you know, the trial of the century and he, he points out quite correctly, like how the hell could that be the trial of the century? What about Lynn, Charles Lindbergh and so on, right? Like, um, and that, that, you know, so like my point being that like none of these examples, I don't think any reasonable neutral reader will find anything he says about these examples untrue. Like OJ probably really did get away with cutting his wife's head off. And that probably should have been the story other than what Furman, you know, Furman was the racist cop at the LOPD and the whole thing became about the fact that Furman used the N-word and I'm not claiming at all that that's a good thing. I'm saying if somebody, if somebody's wife was brutally murdered by a knife, you might want to focus on that, right? Like that might be, right? But there was this post-emotional thing going on in that trial. And it all became about how the prosecution was mean and the defense was so charming and nice. And well, since they're charming and nice, maybe he should get off. And, you know, it's so you can kind of see how things aren't going to work well if that dynamic is embedded in, in, in culture. And then I think, like, or honestly, social media just was like an accelerant. It was like pouring gasoline on all this. And so I think that's an interesting, that is a very good book to read, even given the caveats about how the examples are kind of trite now or they're just not interesting and, anymore. But I think it's still a really good book to read. Mestrovic. The post-emotional society. Actually, just post-emotional society. That's it. Thanks.